So we are continuing our series, which I entitled Joy to the World, and we started this series last Sunday, and we're going to be looking at three specific passages in the book of Isaiah. The people in Isaiah were looking for joy. They were looking for joy in the midst of darkness and destruction. As I opened up the series last week, Joy to the World, and we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, we looked at a people and a land that was absolutely devastated by the enemy. They were devastated by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. They had come in and they brought destruction to the people of God, the nation of God, the kingdom of God. And last week in Isaiah chapter 9, we read about how the people were, Isaiah called it, living under the gloom of darkness, that there was a darkness or a shadow of death that covered the land. And the promise that Isaiah gives in the midst of darkness is 700 years before he's born that there will be one that comes to pierce the darkness, to be the light in the midst of the darkness. That there will actually be one that will be able to break through, to break in through the darkness, and he will be the light. Well, we're continuing that theme this morning, a world looking for joy by looking at Isaiah chapter 11, two chapters later, that they're not, these people are not only looking for the light to pierce the darkness, but they're looking for a king. The kingdom had been established. It was the king that would come through the line of David to rescue his people. And now that the people of God had been devastated, the kingdom of God had been destroyed, people were wondering, how will we now be saved? How will we be rescued? They were longing for a king. These were a people that had great expectations, just as you do. A people living in a world with great expectations and great promises, looking around, thinking that these expectations were dashed and gone forever. That these expectations that we had, that one would come to save us and rescue us, now was absolutely impossible. So these people were looking in Isaiah chapter 11 for the king to come to set this world straight and to be the king that they had longed for. So we read about this king that is coming in chapter 11 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ear hears. But the righteousness he shall judge with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf with the lion, the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young, the, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the cobra the whole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of whom shall the nations inquire? And his resting place 
shall be glorious. Amen. As I said, we live in a world of unmet expectations. You, as you sit here this morning, wrestle in your mind and in your heart with unmet expectations. There is an inner ache in every single one of us. And the problem is we don't even know what that inner ache is. That inner ache and that inner longing, that restlessness for more. We just don't know what that more is. And if there's ever a time, it's usually during the season of Christmas, the busyness of Christmas, the busyness of this season, where we maybe think that the expectations will be met once and for all, that there's going to be another family gathering, another present, another gift, another service. Something will happen that finally that expectation will be met. And they were long, we are all longing for something. We just don't know exactly what that something is. And these people were the same. They were longing for something, someone to meet the expectations of their heart and of their life. And for them, as I said, they were longing for a king. They were longing for the one that would come to restore the kingdom, someone that would come to revive the land, someone that would come to put everything wrong back right because everything was absolutely devastated. They were looking for a king, one that would come one that would come to make all wrongs right. And we see here in chapter 11 of verse 1 that one will come. And how is he described? He's described as a shoot. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. A shoot is simply a tender branch. A young branch will come. A tender shoot. But what's significant is where does it come from? It comes out of a stump, something that is dead. Something that has no life, something that seemingly has no more purpose. And what Isaiah wants them to understand is although you feel like a stump right now, and the the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David at one time was like a glorious forest, it's been leveled to nothing but a stump. And And on the surface, it looks like it has no life, and it has no purpose, and it has no meaning, but in fact, that stump that is dead and lifeless, out of the death will come life. So that this king that comes will come out from nothing. He will come out and make dead things alive. He will make dead things come to life. And so this king that is coming will come like a shoot, will come like a tender branch that comes out and life will come out of death. And it says here that this shoot, that the will come from the line of who? The stump of Jesse. Who was, who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. And David was the great king of Israel. And what's interesting here is that Isaiah points to the lesser known person. He could have easily said, he's coming from the line of David. Have no fear. Yes, the great kingdom of David will continue. The great king David, there will be another great king. But he doesn't do that. He goes to the lesser known father and he, he almost wipes out David here from the lineage. And he wants us to go back to not David, but he wants us to go back to David's father, Jesse. Why? Because if he would have said from the stump of David or from the line of David, people could have easily dismissed it and said, oh gosh, another king. Another king that might come to disappoint us. And what Isaiah wants us to understand, that one is coming that is greater than David. A new David is coming. A greater David is coming. A better King David is coming than what you, than what you have experienced. The one who built this kingdom, David, 
one is coming that is greater than him. So he co- takes us back and he, he, he pushes David to the side and he says, one is coming from the stump of Jesse. So what kind of king is this? What kind of king will come to make renewal and revival possible? Well, the first thing that we see here in verse 2, that this king that comes out from the stump of Jesse will come with wisdom. But it's not just any wisdom. It says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him in verse 2, and that because the Spirit of the Lord is upon this king, this one that will come to bring life out of death, that the wisdom of who? The wisdom of God is upon him. That this king that is coming will not operate with the wisdom of the world. That this king that is coming will not operate with the wisdom of man, but will operate with the very wisdom of God. That he will have, in verse 2, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. That he will know exactly what to do. But it gets better. In verse 2, not only will he know what to do, it says that he will have counsel and might. What does that mean? It means he will not only know what to do, he will have the power to do it. He will have the power to execute it. That the king that is coming will not only have the wisdom of God and know exactly what to do, but he will have all of the counsel and all of the power and all of the might to accomplish what God has called him to accomplish. It's the wisdom of God that will be upon this king. And it's the wisdom of God that pales in, that makes the wisdom of the world seem foolish. It's the wisdom of God held up against the wisdom of this world that looks absolutely foolish. That the wisdom of God makes the wisdom of the world look foolish and the wisdom of the world makes the wisdom of God look foolish. And I began to think to myself a few weeks ago, I shared this briefly with our staff. I, I started to think about my dependence upon the wisdom of God. And say, I can preach the wisdom of God. I can preach that there is a better wisdom. There is a better way of doing things and living life and making decisions. But Rob, do you really believe it? As you lead this church and as you lead the staff, are you really dependent upon the wisdom of God? Anybody that knows me knows that I love a good strategy. I love to strategize. I love to plan. I love to have five vision goals. I love to have a very clear system of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And in the midst of that, I said, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I began to say, do you really, in all of this, in all your strategizing and all your planning, are you really dependent upon the wisdom of God? Do you really believe that there is a greater wisdom than the wisdom, Rob, that you bring to the table? Is there a greater wisdom than that, the wisdom that we bring to the table in our life? Think about it this way. Imagine you were in a boardroom tomorrow morning, and you were strategizing And you call all of your friends and colleagues together and you put it on the whiteboard and you say, here's my vision. In 2,000 years, I want everybody to know my name. And in 2,000 years, I want my teaching to be the single most influential writing in all of history and civilization. I want to be so influential that a quarter of the world's population will revolve their life around me people go, wow, it's quite a strategy. And then I come to them or you come to them and you go, okay, and this is how we're going to get there. Once you start your career, you're going to go out to the most obscure regions of the, of the community. 
You're going to have very little interaction with the kind of the metropolitan, cosmopolitan, kind of the city centers of, of, uh, uh, of our regions and of our neighborhoods. And uh, you're going to kind of live in obscurity. You, uh, you're going to go out and uh, you're, you're not going to really engage in those centers in the world that have any kind of political or economic or social influence. And then, here's the kicker. Once all that's been done, as soon as my career steps into high gear, I'm going to be publicly executed and humiliated. And then we will realize the vision of my name being known all around the world. And I share that with you, obviously, to show that the wisdom of God, even as he sends his son to earth, is absolutely foolishness to the world. Everything God has done, everything God does, from sending his son to an obscure place called Bethlehem, to sending his son to obscure, obscurity and, and, and the scandalous nature in which he was born in a manger, and Jesus teaching on things like this, the, the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, the, the obscurity of the teaching that you work hard all of your life and make money and you're now called to give it all away. The obscurity to, to, to work hard so that you can serve others and love others and sacrifice your own life for the sake of others. Think about the obscurity of the wisdom of God compared to the wisdom of the world. That was convicting for me, and I pray it's convicting for you as well. Do you really believe there's a better wisdom? As you raise your kids, as you raise your house, as you operate in business, as you operate in this world, maybe, just maybe, Dr. Phil doesn't have the greatest plan for your life. Maybe, just maybe, Warren Buffett doesn't have the greatest plan to invest your money. What if there was a better wisdom? What if there was a greater wisdom than the wisdom of the world? And this wisdom is upon this king. But not only will he be marked by the wisdom of God, in verse 4 and 5 it says that he will operate with righteousness and justice. It says in verse 4, with righteousness he will judge the poor. And the word there, judge, seems harsh, right? Hey, they're already down. Don't kick them while they're down. But the word judge there means justice. And the people that long for justice are who? Those that are oppressed, those that are victims, those that have been marginalized, whether that's the orphan or the widow or the unborn or the homeless, those people that we in our society would tend to marginalize and continue to oppress, what does this king do? He comes down and with righteousness, he will bring about justice. He will make all wrongs right. And not only he will judge them with justice and righteousness, but what else does he do? It says that he will decide their, and he will de de decide in verse four with equity. What does it mean? He will begin making decisions for them. He will stand in their place as their advocate. What a beautiful promise that this king comes down and he makes all wrongs right. He makes the crooked straight by standing for the oppressed bringing justice and righteousness to those that are broken and weary and standing in the gap as their advocate, making decisions on their behalf for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. It's why 
the thieves and the lepers ran to Jesus because Jesus was their high priest who was what the author of Hebrews tells us, the empathetic high priest. He was able to empathize with our suffering. He was able to empathize with our brokenness. Why? Because Jesus himself comes down and is broken and experiences suffering on our behalf. So this king that comes down, this king that they are expecting, not only has the wisdom of God, not only will he judge with righteousness and with meekness, but at the end of this passage that we read in verse 6 through 9, it says that he will destroy death. What do I mean by that? In verse 6 through 9, Isaiah gives us these incredible pictures these otherworldly pictures that do not make sense to the wisdom of the world. He talks about a lion, he talks about a, a, a wolf lying with a lamb. He talks about a leopard lying with a young goat. He even talks about a nursing child doing what? Something so ridiculous, playing over the whole of the cobra. Could you imagine for those that are mothers and fathers, your nursing child playing peekaboo with a cobra, sticking its head in and out of a cobra's hole? Could you imagine the ridiculous nature of that? And that is exactly what Isaiah is trying to do. Isaiah is always embellishing metaphors for us to understand the radical transformation of the kingdom of God, that when Jesus comes down, there is a radical transformation that takes place. Nothing unlike this world has ever seen that even a nursing child will be able to hover over the hole of a cobra. The only explanation for that is a king that comes down and destroys death, destroys violence, destroys suffering, destroys even the fear of death. Only then can the wolf lie down with the lamb. Only then can the child play over the cobra's hole. Only once death has been destroyed. And that is the great promise that Isaiah gives us here in chapter 11. And that's why we do what we do as a church. Because everything we do as a church is reminder to us and reminder to South Florida that there is a king that is coming. Unlike this world has ever seen, that will put all wrongs to right that there is a king that is coming that will take all that is broken and make it whole again, that there is a king that is coming that will bring out of death, what? Life. It's why we mend bodies and wounds because one day all bodies will be mended. It's why we grow businesses and jobs because one day we will all work in the Father's business. It's why we plant flowers and paint houses and rehab neighborhoods because one day there won't be any more ugliness. It's why we speak words of encouragement and hope to one another because one day we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's why we practice hospitality and invite the broken and the poor and the marginalized into our church and into our homes and into our lives. Why? Because suddenly, one day, we will find ourselves seated at the Father's table and all the aches will be gone and all the inner restlessness will be gone and we will realize that we are home and that our family is here. You see, in our Father's house, every morning is Christmas. And you might sit here this morning and you say, Rob, this this seems too good to be true. 
seems impossible. Wolves lying with lambs and kids playing with cobras and death and life coming out of death and shoots coming out through dead stumps. And you're right. According to the wisdom of the world, this is absolutely impossible. This will require someone who is otherworldly. And we find out about the otherworldly nature of this king that will come down in verse 10. Because it's in verse 10 that it says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Now wait a second. In verse 1 it said, The shoot of Jesse. Now, I understand that. The shoot of Jesse means one will be born. I get that. I get Advent preparing for the birth of Christ. The root means what? The root comes before the what? The stump. What Isaiah is trying to do here is to blow your mind. In verse 1, he's saying there's a king that's coming that will be born. In verse 10, he's saying this one that will be born has always existed with the father. He existed before Jesse. The miracle of miracles. The only one that is able to do the impossible. The only one that's able to do the impossible this morning in your life is the one that comes in the most impossible fashion. The one that is born at Christmas has always existed with the Father before the foundation of the world. You see, it is this king who has all wisdom. It is this king that rules with justice and righteousness. It is this king that will destroy death. It is this king that will be born that has no beginning and no end. What king is this? He's not only the shoot. He's also the root. Let me close with this. Tony Campolo, a popular author, professor, teacher, talks about experience when he was 16 years old. He was invited to his first black funeral uh, at this uh, African-American church in Philadelphia, and he went for his friend Clarence. He was only 16 years old, and Clarence was a close friend uh, that God took home early, and he said the experience was incredible. This funeral was absolutely mind-blowing. And the pastor for Clarence got up and he preached an incredible sermon. He preached on the resurrection and he preached on it in the most beautiful terms. It absolutely thrilled us. And at the end, he came down from the pulpit. He went to the family and he comforted them with John chapter 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. For Clarence, this day is in his heavenly mansion. Then for the last 20 minutes of the sermon, he actually preached to the open casket. He said, what drama? He yelled at the corpse, and he said, Clarence, Clarence, God took you home way too early. I have many things that I wish to say to you, but you got away too fast. And then he went down a litany of beautiful things that Clarence had done for other people. But when he finished with great drama, he said, that's it, Clarence. Nothing more to say. Nothing more to say. And he took the casket lid and he slammed it down. And shockwaves went over the congregation. And as the preacher lifted his head, you could see he was smiling and he said, good night, Clarence, good night. Because I know that God will give you a good morning. And the choir stood and started singing, on that morning we shall rise, we shall rise. We were all dancing in the aisles that day, hugging each other.
I knew the joy of the Lord that day, a joy that in the face of death laughs and sings and dances, for there will be no more death. Amen. My question I have for you this morning is, do you know this king? This king that came down and stood in your place. This king that came down and in the midst of the busyness and the hardships of life took on those hardships, took on our sin, took on our grief, bore our suffering so that you might live. Do you know him? There was a lady by the name of Melissa that spent her entire life resisting God, running from God, denying that God existed. Melissa spent her whole life denying that there was a God and she would talk about how angry Christians made her, how angry the idea of God made her. And at the end of her life, she decided to confess this anger to a pastor of all people. And she went on and on and wanted to just express her grief and her anger about God and religion and Christianity. And amazed that the pastor for over an hour listened and did not judge her once, this woman, Melissa, leaned over and said, but can I tell you one thing? There's one thing you have to know. That every night I turn off the light And the last thing I do is I whisper, I miss you, Jesus. I hope you're real. For Melissa, there was something in her, even through a life of denying the existence of Jesus, that wanted him to be real, that wanted him to be true. And so do you. And maybe for some of you, this might be the first Christmas where you encounter this one, the one that answers the restlessness of your heart, the one that answers the inner ache of your soul that you've often wondered what would actually satisfy it. And today might be the first day in your entire life where you are introduced to this man by the name of Jesus that through his life and death and resurrection, that inner aching can go away, that inner restlessness can be put to rest. Because the reality is this Christmas that there is nothing in the world that can satisfy, but there's someone at Christmas that can.